Father, we do bring glory to your name this morning. We pray you would perfect all that we do, Father, that we might be edified as your, as your church, as your bride, the very family of God, and that in that, Father, you might be glorified. But we, by our ministries here today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, we sang that song in the Bible study. Isn't that a beautiful song? That's one of the nicest tunes, I think, that we, that we play. So I'll ask you to open your Bibles again to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. A difficult but necessary text of Scripture, and the Apostle Paul handles it in his usual thorough way. And so I'll ask you to turn to Romans chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. I'll read this morning, and my remarks will be based on that text. So Romans 2.11 this morning. Romans 2.11. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as, as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And so the Apostle Paul writes these words to the church at Rome, and Father, we receive them this morning as dedicated to all Christians in all times, and we thank you for this revelation and admonishment to us this morning, O Lord. All right, so it's a short passage, and there's a lot in it, Um, so let's turn right to verse 11 where Paul writes, there is no partiality with God. What does that mean? It means no favoritism, right? No partiality. God's not partial to one person over the other. Um, actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to qualify that. God at times is partial to one person over the other, but not one person's sins over the other person's sins. God judges the sin without partiality. Now, this is a rule or a rubric, if you like, uh, which was the essence of last week's message on the first ten verses of the chapter. And we said there that God is no respecter of persons. That's that's a, a phrase repeated throughout Scripture in a number of places, and uh, your modern translations of uh, different types might say God shows no partiality. It used to say God is no respecter of persons. That would be like in the old King James and authorized versions. But he will judge each person not on the basis of any particular quality in that person. There's not something in you that God will favor and that will acquit you of any sin that you may have committed, you see. He's going to judge us according to the sins we each commit. And so the verse at hand speaks more of the character of God than it does of the character of men. Last week we labored over the concept of God's impartiality. To some extent, we'll do that again this week. But the main point of last week's message was we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things, and the such things, of course, are the sins listed before um, in that chapter. I think it would be a good exercise this morning to appeal 
to the parables of Scripture. The parables are there because with a word picture, they sort of reveal to us something that's really not so easy to put into words. I find these difficult sections of Scripture to exposit before you. There's my confession this morning. Not my disqualifier, but my confession this morning. But we do have the parables. And and the thing about a parable is a word picture that makes something more memorable to us. And Jesus used them a lot, but they're used throughout the Scripture. So I'm going to turn to a couple of parables of of Scripture this morning to make a dual point. First, that God, when it comes time to judge each man, will not take into account any special aspect of that man's person. That's number one. It isn't about the person. No special affinity or relationship with the Lord will blind the Lord to the sins committed even by his beloved. The fact that he loves us doesn't blind him to the sins we commit. All right? And the second point will be this. Though God is no respecter of persons, it's almost impossible to find a man who is not a respecter of persons. It's perhaps an even greater feat to find a man that's acquainted with the heinous nature of his own personal sin. People are blinded, or or nearly so, with regard to their personal offenses. Yet they seem to see the the offensive nature of other people's sin quite clearly. And so I have a a parable that goes back to the time of Samuel um, that I think elucidates this concept very well. And I hope it's familiar to you. I included the whole thing in the notes so that your different versions wouldn't throw you off when I read it. So we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, the first 12 verses of 2 Samuel 12. Now you remember David was the great king of Israel, a thousand years before Christ, right? And he had a special envoy, a special counselor, a special prophet who mediated between him and God on certain matters, and his name was Nathan. Not to be confused with David's son, Nathan, from whom the Lord genealogy arises, all right? There were, I think, six Nathans in the Old Testament. This is a very special Nathan. He's the special prophet or seer to King David, the great king of Israel. And so we read, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in its bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, I know most of you are thinking, a lamb? Let me tell you something. You know why it doesn't say a little puppy or a little dog? The Jews didn't like dogs. Dogs were not big in Arab lands and Semitic lands, particularly not in this age. But lambs were, and lambs were beloved. And so in Nathan's parable, he has the man with a little pet lamb. It ate of his food, it drank from his cup, it lay in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him, which means he cooked it. David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man that has done this thing shall surely die 
and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, he went on, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. You have despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. So you see, it wasn't about a lamb after all, was it? It was about a man, in fact, if you know the history, a great man. A great warrior, a man loyal to David, who put his life in David's hands, and David squandered his life to hide his sin. And you took his wife to be your own, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Excuse me. And you killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. David gave orders to his officers to send Uriah into a place in the battle that he could not win, and to fall back and let him fall. Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. If you follow the history, you will find that David's house and family were greatly troubled throughout the biblical history of that great clan. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before Israel, before the sun. Now I hope we know, David has a special little epithet that he goes by. He is the apple of God's eye. Some of your Bibles will say the pupil of God's eye, meaning he's very dear to God. There's no question about that. But the sin is the sin. And it's equally bad in David as it would be in you or me or anyone else. How many believers do you suppose have the sword of adversity hanging over their houses due to the blindness of their own sin? There's a precept, there's a, well, a rule, if you will, that the more you have, the more you know the more responsibility you bear. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached it this way. He said, I say, therefore, that every time you and I hear the gospel, our responsibility increases. You know, I have to tell you, it's a fearful thing to sit here and listen to the word of God because your responsibility increases with each level of knowledge that you increase in. God isn't going to come to you in the judgment day and say, I can't say that you didn't know me. You didn't know my expectations. You actually were a very faithful follower of Christ. You came every Sunday. You were there at the Bible study. You taught children's school. You did all these things. You knew my will and told others my will, and yet you failed me in this way. I've preached many times and appealed to the wisdom of the great philosopher King Solomon, who wrote this, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The Apostle Peter wrote something similar. He said, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord, that's us, right? They've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it would have been better for them not to ever have known 
the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. A fearful statement. Friends, you might remember the apostles at the Last Supper. These are the very close friends, the compatriots of of the great rabbi, the teacher, Jesus of Nazareth. And he chose 12 for himself to follow him. And so they were very close to him. But at the supper, uh, Jesus hinted or actually came right out and said, one of you will betray me. And so think of the privilege it is to have been one of the 12 who would serve him in that way. Think of the things they knew about Jesus that you and I could never know. Think about the closeness they had to the very person of their Messiah, their God and Creator. They walked the earth with their Creator. And to have had the up-close and personal contact with the Lord of glory. They ate and drank and slept and walked and rejoiced and mourned side by side with their Lord and Teacher. Think of the power he vested in them to preach the word, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons. He did all these things. We know that when the 70 returned to him to give account of their exploits, they reveled in the power and the privilege that he granted them. In fact, we read it thus. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. We can cast out demons. But even in their exaltation, he warns them with these verses. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Friends, all the powers men may possess and be tempted to revel in, there is no power within them to bring their own souls to heaven. That is quite out of their own reach. Surely these twelve had more responsibility to conduct themselves in a godly way than other men, wouldn't you think? There's only a few men that were ever sanctioned to write scripture. No one's asked me to write any lately. And so Jesus answers them as to the betrayal. Which one of us will betray you? And he said, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And we know he's talking about Judas Iscariot, right? Imagine the closeness with Christ. Imagine Judas, two by two, in the countryside, healing people of their sicknesses, being bestowed with the power of an apostle, healing people, casting out demons preaching the word of God with power, converting men's souls, and then betraying the Lord. The Lord's not going to come to him and say, you know, you're one of my 12, so I'm going to give you this other chance. He has to judge the sin of betrayal the same in his close compatriot as in someone else because God's judgment is according to truth. Even the privilege of apostleship, even the privilege of being anointed king of Israel in its time could not insulate the betrayer from God's fearful judgment. And so when it comes time to judge the secrets of men's hearts, those who have been greatly blessed will be greatly scrutinized. And there are several parables that teach this very thing. Surely the parable of the talents is one, right? The wicked servant, God's words, not mine. The wicked servant came to him and gave him back what he had given to him with no profit from the gift at all. He just gave him back the blessings that God had given him. Didn't invest them. And he aroused the anger of the Lord. Think about this. We're not allowed to break even as Christians. 
He considers it evil that we don't invest ourselves. Because remember, it's the doer that gets the commendation of the Lord, not just the hearer. It's the doer. And so he came to him, and he gave back the Lord what was his, but no profit with it. And he aroused the anger of the Lord, or the master in the, in the parable, and he said, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown. You see, he's holding him responsible for what he knows about the master. And you gather where I did not scatter seed. You know that's what I want to do. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I would at least have my own back with interest. They had banks and interest and CDs and all those things back then, I guess. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. In other words, give it to the one who knows how to invest in the gifts of God that I've put in him. Give it to the one who gave me back my own with profit. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So if you didn't know that about the Lord, you do now. We should take note also that great men seem to have great sins. Did you ever notice that? Greater men seem to have greater sins. Think of David and Solomon. Go back and read the histories of these men. Great men of God. Solomon, considered the wisest among men. Jesus said, but a greater than Solomon is here. I'm the one that gave him the wisdom. Look also to the fall of great statesmen and politicians in our time who've succumbed to scandal and ill repute. Having said all these things, however, a great man like David ought to consider the rebuke of the prophet a great grace. You know, greatness is sort of like gravity. The higher you are, the harder you hit when you fall, it seems. You've heard, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. That's a, that's a gravity illustration. Um, so having said all these things, a man like David ought not to be angry with the prophet when he comes to him. He ought to consider it the grace of God. Finally, you stopped me in my tracks. I've been sinning and rejoicing in it all this time. I've been rejoicing in Bathsheba, the wife of the man I killed. Who, by the way, is Solomon's mother. In case you didn't know that. The Lord still blessed the son of David from Bathsheba. So we ought to consider it a grace when finally someone told him, you are sinning in this. It was Nathan's wily ingenuity that caused the king to see the sin that he so grievously bears before the Lord. Why did Nathan know that David would come up with the right idea and he would say, the man that took the one little ewe lamb was an evil man and he needs to pay. He knew he was a good and just man, but he knew he was a blind man, blind to his own sin. And so Nathan's wily ingenuity caused the king to see the sin he so grievously bears before the Lord. Until the rebuke, the king was blinded to his own exceeding sinfulness of sin. That's what Paul talks about. He tries to make us see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We see our sin and we think, it's not that bad. You look around, oh, that guy's worse than me. My sin's not that bad. But Paul tries to show the exceeding sinfulness. It's sin against God. So though God's not partial to the level of status in a man with regard to judgment, he is partial to the level of blessing that he's put into a, a person and bestowed upon him. He's a respecter of expected responsibility. I think the Lord expected more from David than David gave. I think the Lord expected more from the apostles, perhaps, than they gave. 
He's a respecter of his own blessing bestowed on us. Lloyd-Jones again. The more we have grown in grace and advanced in the knowledge of the Lord, again, the greater is our responsibility. And the principle that's being laid down here is that God in his judgment is going to take all these things into full account. And it's perfectly fair, he writes, and it's perfectly just and right. And so we may turn to Jesus from the Gospel of Luke for the classic iteration of this principle. Jesus answers a question from Peter with regard to this very subject. And so we read, that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. You see, the more you know, the harsher you're going to be judged. And he's saying this to the Jews of that time. But as I said, the safest place for us to be is to not be in the seat of the Gentiles, because in a, we're only Gentiles by blood, friends, by culture, by blessing. We're the people of God. Put yourself in the seat of the ones who know the will of God, as the Jews, from our reading. And so clearly, Paul's teaching on the wrath of God continues to the Romans. He's laying out a principle that the Jews of that day had little appreciation for. They thought he was a respecter of persons with sons of Abraham. He can't strike out against us. They misunderstood their own laws. It's my belief that when the passage points to Jewish privilege, we ought to receive it as Christian privilege as well. That's the safest path with regard to application of the principles taught here. Friends, the Jews were given the law, and that was the reason they saw themselves as special recipients of the Lord's favor. He gave them the law. He didn't give it to anyone else. The oracles of God, the revealed will of God written down was given to the Jews only and to no one else. And they kept it faithfully for us all these centuries. They kept it. So they saw that as special privilege. But they forgot that the law said something in it about them and about God. So friends, think of blessing as a coin with two sides. One side is God's favor. The other is his expectation of responsibility. Consider the source of privilege, the blessing of revelation, the wonder of holding the written word of God in your hand. And try, if you can, not to fall on your knees and put yourself at the Lord's service. Ours is to reckon the source of the blessing and to act accordingly. Friends, the blessing is from God, and we above all people know that. And it should immediately infuse us with a sense of unbridled gratitude. That's the test. Are you taking the blessing For granted, you know that you are if you're not overwhelmingly thankful. Instead, it often emits a sense of unbridled pride. And certainly that's what Jesus and John the Baptist kept saying to these Pharisees, right? And to the Jews. Pride appropriates privilege. Gratitude is the antidote to pride. It's the beginning, at least. For a person is less able to glory in his privilege if he remains cognizant of the fact that the privilege he enjoys is not of his own making. His first response should be gratitude. Friends, what, that's what Lord, the Lord was saying. That's what Nathan was saying to David. I made you king over a great nation. I delivered you from the hands of your enemies. I gave all that was his, I gave to you. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you much more. And yet you break my commandment knowing it offends me. Gratitude. David took it for granted. Gratitude would have been the antidote. For a person's less able to glory in his privilege if he remains cognizant of the fact that the privilege he enjoys is not of his own making. 
His first response should be gratitude. Yet we see, and what the apostles warning against, is the human tendency to consider blessing as privilege rather than grace. We get used to being blessed. I got to admit, I'm used to being blessed. We've been blessed. I've been blessed as a man. I've been blessed as a father, as a husband. I've been blessed as a pastor with a great congregation of fellow Christians, blessed with spiritual gifts. It, It gets to the point where you can take that for granted, but get on your knees and thank God for it and act accordingly. And if you're truly thankful, you'll know how to act. In so many believers, privilege tends to regard blessing as deserved. But friends, grace knows that all blessings are undeserved. They're just blessings. They're just gifts. And so if I'm sitting in the seat of judgment today for the secrets of your hearts, consider me in the place of Nathan. And again, you'll be in the safest seat in the house, ready to repent, ready to look and say, if the Lord says it's sin, then I put it away. And receive the rebuke as the Lord's greatest blessing to you in this present season of your life. The person who's greatly favored, the one who's greatly blessed, must never look askance at the one who's not so well favored or showered with blessings in his life. And these verses ought to become a fearful reminder of these things. So think about this. Think about our blessings and where we stand before the Lord. Paul said to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present age. Imagine Pastor Timothy at the Church of the Ephesians going around and saying, you know, you look like a rich man. I'm going to command you not to be haughty because riches will make you haughty. And don't trust in uncertain riches because you can't take it with you, as they say, right? So don't trust in uncertain riches, rich man, but trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Friends, if you have them, they're from God. Let them do good, he said, that they be rich in good works. Friends, if you're rich in good things, be rich in good works. God expects it. Willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. Friends, have you ever heard men say, we hear it often enough, old so-and-so does not deserve my help. You know how he is. His problems are of his own making. Friends, I gotta tell you, every problem I've ever had, everything I've ever prayed for that that I needed from God, sometimes immediately I fell on my knees and the first thing I said is, I know I caused this, but I still want you to help me out. I didn't say, well, I won't ask because I know it was my own failure, my own... I go before God because I I know I failed. So we say about old so-and-so that his problems are are his own and he made them himself. I work hard for what I have and he must learn to do the same. So I have no pity for his miserable condition. Now, I understand that argument. I get it. But when you say such things or believe in your heart that your present level of blessing is the result of your own hard labor and deserving spirit, you've lost the central aspect of God's teaching. Yes, you were more responsible than the other guy, and that's why you were blessed. But guess what? Here's a test for you now. There's a man in need, and he's in your path. Are you the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? Friends, the collateral damage of great blessing is pride in yourself we begin to see that it's us and contempt for a person who is less blessed. Well, he didn't pull himself up by the bootstraps the way I had to do. And friends, I want you to be that way. I want you to be self-sufficient. I want you to work hard and faithfully before the Lord. That's part of the teaching as well. But your blessing should have taught you charity or generosity or humility. And I'm not unaware of the need for people to be self-sufficient and to apply themselves for their own enrichment. And lazy men are going to 
be in need. The book of Proverbs, chapter 6, go to. Consider the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, for she neither sleeps nor slumbers, right? But beware that you don't miss that he or she has been put in your path to test your heart's response. You've attested to your own personal earthly rewards, but you forgot an essential law of Christ which says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And keep in mind that it was the Samaritan, the accursed Samaritan. Nobody likes them. It wasn't the priest. It wasn't the Levite. These are the great holy men who bore the burden of a fallen neighbor. And why did Jesus call the man his neighbor? Because he was put needily in his path in a moment when the Samaritan was blessed with the ability to rescue him. And that's all he saw. He's fallen, and I'm able to help him. And the Samaritan blessed him. Verses 12 through 14, For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Um, let's just stop with that. We know that the Lord, in his, in his graciousness, gave the law to the Jewish people. And to some people, he didn't give the law. But he's not going to judge them by the law he gave to Moses. He's going to judge them because he knows in their own hearts they have a law unto themselves, and that will be sufficient to condemn them as well. None of us keeps... You know, you hear, you've heard it said, I don't go to church, it's full of hypocrites. What do you think, everyone out, outside the church is a hypocrite? They're worse. Yeah, I'll say there's hypocrites here. I'll put myself in the seat of the hypocrite if you like. Some people think just because you change your mind, you're a hypocrite. No, I learned something. I grew up. It took me 30 years, but I got there. I've been a grown-up now for 35 years, and I'm 65 years old. As many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are justified in the sight of God, but the doers of the law. Friends, we do not want to be a company of hearers only. As James said, deceiving yourself. You heard it? And you deceived yourself into thinking the job was done. You forgot the application. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, and the Lord is happy to judge them by their own law. They will fail there too. So two points from the verses. First, doing's always the application of knowing. You can't just know in this life. You have to do. And that's throughout the New Testament. You'll see that all over the place. Go to the second chapter of James. To know without application is to return your talent to the creditor without interest. It's a waste of the divine investment the Father has made in you to just know and not do. For what is love, friends, apart from acts of love? What's faith apart from acts of faith? What's righteousness apart from acts of righteousness? Oh, I'm loving and I'm faithful and I'm righteous. I just don't do anything. And a second equally important point is that we're all impartially judged. We're judged by our own system of judgment. The Lord knew that Gentiles didn't have Mosaic law, but what he's doing is he's talking to a diverse church. Remember I told you, Rome was diverse. We think we invented that concept or something lately. Progressives are all diverse. Roman Empire was very diverse. There was all kinds and colors and cultures of people. And he's telling them all, you can't stand on your own standard and think it'll measure up to God and to his approval. It won't work, Jew or Gentile, it won't work. So a second equally important point here is that we're all impartially judged. It isn't about us, it's about what we've done. But we're not all judged in accordance with the same standard. 
And make no mistake, everyone has a standard, whether it's stated or unstated, known or unknown. You know, I think about the agnostic. The agnostic would like to be given a pass. He's just not going to comment on God. You know, you've committed yourself. I don't get the Bible. I don't understand that it's pointing to God. I have a lot of objections. But I must say, I really don't know anything any better. So I'm just out of the conversation. I'm over here. And you religious people can fight it over there. It's sort of a virtue signaling, signaling moral superiority thing, right? But who's the God to the agnostic? It just came to me now. His stupidity. The agnostic, it means... Not, gnosis means knowledge, and you put the A in front of it, it negates it. It means without knowledge. So your God is the fact that you don't know something. That's the thing you follow. The Lord doesn't let you off the hook for that. I believe he wrote this section for the agnostic. The agnostic is the one who declares himself ill-equipped to determine the existence of God and acts according to his standard. God will judge him by that standard. And friends, you can see he's going to fail. Because the heavens declared the glory of God, and I've never met an agnostic that didn't live under the heavens. Verse 15 forbids the act of excusing oneself from the moral conversation. Friends, if you're human, you're in this conversation. Now, you can excuse yourself and call us all stupid, or you can say, well, you can't know anything. You can't prove the existence of God. I never said I could prove the existence of God. God doesn't receive us with proof. There's plenty of evidence. He receives us by faith. Or we receive him by faith, I should say. Verse 15 forbids the act of excusing oneself from the moral argument. It says of such people that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. In other words, the agnostic knows it's probably not a good thing to murder someone. He knows it's not a good thing to commit adultery. He knows it's not a good thing to steal or to wish evil on other people. He knows these things, but he doesn't keep even his own standard. That's Paul's argument. And you argue against it at your peril. But that's the apostle's argument. And he says, their conscience bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts either accusing or excusing them. All right? For us, our thoughts should accuse us. For the agnostic, they excuse him in his own mind. He's not really excused. Such men's thoughts would either accuse them, in which case they pronounce themselves guilty, or they excuse him. And there are no morally acceptable excuses for sinfulness before God. David couldn't go to Nathan and say, you know, I was just in a frenzy at that moment. I wasn't myself. It won't happen again. Don't worry about it. doesn't matter. Very destructive, and it already happened. And the whole thing's in parentheses, by the way, if you noticed it. And the parentheses are Paul's, who added the special warning for the agnostic, I think. His own thoughts do not exempt him from judgment. He'll merely be judged by his own very low standard of morality, and still he'll fail. His own thoughts are certain to convict him. And how do we know this? Because even those without the law, Paul writes, show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience. See, your, has your conscience ever bothered you, agnostic? Has it ever, have you ever said, even though you don't know if there's a God, have you ever done something and say, that doesn't feel right? Guess what? That's God talking to you. The gift of the conscience. Even for the one without the law. Something felt right when I ripped that guy off. Thumb on the scale. It's written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Friends, I named the sermon The Secrets of Men. I find that a fearful thing. We wouldn't even want each other to know all our secrets. We know that no one keeps the law, none but the incarnate Lord himself. 
If anyone has ever kept the law, think about this. If anyone has ever kept the law in its entirety and somehow miraculously escaped judgment and perdition on his own merit, the Lord of glory would not have died. If just one man did it, he wouldn't have died because that one righteous man would have been the testimony that a man could justify himself by human effort and moral application. And it isn't so. If there was one righteous man, Jesus would not have died. He would have put him up on a pedestal and said, be like him, and the rest of you be damned. But it's his testimony to Paul's warning here in chapter 2 that no such man exists. And he'll belabor that in chapter 3. So we have to keep doing this. The law is impossible to keep. You know, I used to get so fired up in the old days when I preached from Nehemiah, I swore I'd never do it again. I told it, don't worry, I'm not going to Nehemiah this week. But, um, you know, Jeremiah tried that. He said, whenever I preached the word of God, men derided me and they persecuted me and they did all these things. So I decided never to speak the word of God again. But he said, but it was like a fire inside me shut up in my bones and I could not hold it back. I call that the Jeremiah principle. If you're called to preach, you're going to preach. It's just going to come out. So if anyone ever kept the law, the Lord wouldn't have died. But it's testimony to Paul's warning here in chapter 2 that no such man exists. The law is impossible to keep. Justification before God is not only undeserved, it's undeservable. You couldn't possibly deserve it. It's not deservable. It's not out there. It's not the gold ring that you're reaching for. Or maybe it is, but you can't reach it. But it's the hubris of man in such, or rather, the hubris of man is such that the blessing of God's revelation with regard to his personal standard of moral righteousness is that God's gift does not come with the obvious requisite responsibility. That's the hubris, that's the pride, that's the delusion of man that God will gift me, but there's no responsibility attached. In fact, the Jewish standard of righteousness that's revealed in the law of God is higher, far higher, than the other standard of which Paul is speaking. That is the moral consciousness of non-Jews. Consider the concept from James who wrote this, Let not many of you become teachers, for we will receive a stricter judgment. Why? Because theoretically we know more. And we have more responsibility. We can't just teach. We have to teach the word of God and do it right. More knowledge is a higher standard of judgment. There have been many attempts by Christian preachers in my lifetime to make a very clear line of demarcation between law and grace. And friends, I'll tell you, I'll grant that there are distinctions that have to be made, obviously, between law and grace, but never lose sight of the fact that as the, these rebellious, stiff-necked people, again, God's words, not mine, they received the difficult burden of the law, a blessing that Jesus himself called an impossible yoke. It was a blessing it was a divine mercy that the Lord of glory chose to speak to them at all. You know, we say, well, the law is a burden. Praise God, he brought us grace. But friends, it's a mercy that he chose to speak to you at all. It's a mercy that Nathan finally came and rebuked the king. He could have lost his head for that. David loved him. He, I think he trusted he wouldn't. But he had to come and tell him what the Lord said. And you know, there's, a, there's another great passage in the books of the kings about Micaiah the prophet and you know, Ahab, the evil king, came out and he got all of these prophets. I think it was three, four hundred prophets. So he got them, will I succeed in battle today? And they're so afraid to tell the king anything bad. They said, yes, you'll succeed, you'll succeed. And, uh, and uh, the king of Judah said, well, there's one more. There's, there's one more prophet I think you should consult. He goes, I know, it's Micaiah, but he never prophesies anything good. 
He comes right out and says it. So what does Micaiah do? He comes out, three or four hundred guys over here, politically correct. This is the progressive group. You have to agree with us or we'll kill you and put you in prison and cancel you. And so Micaiah comes out and says, no, you're going to succeed in the battle. Unfortunately, you're going to die. Put them in chains. Put them on bread and water, literally. They threw them in prison. And what do you think happened? Ahab goes out. There's one little opening in the armor, and that's where the arrow hit, right? It's tough to be Micaiah. It's romantic. I stood against the tide. I stood up for what I believed in. We'll find out, won't we? It's under attack. The burden of the law is a difficult thing, but it's a divine mercy that he gave it to us in the first place. Can you imagine being out there? You're sentenced to live on the desert for 40 years and eat manna every day, which was like a little porridge or something, right? Tasted sweet like honey or something. I could say, I always thought it was like cream of wheat. You ever have cream of wheat? When they describe it, I think cream of wheat with a little honey on it. I like maple syrup, but, but then again, I don't eat cream of wheat, so, but, um, or very seldom. But with all of that, and then the Lord comes out, and, and he, he's a fire on the mountain. You can't approach the mountain or you'll die, even if you're an animal, right? And, the, and Moses disappears for 40 days. He comes down. They can't wait, so they start doing what? They do what people do. They sin. They create a god. They go back to eat. They, in their minds, go back to Egypt and create uh, an idol for one of the Egyptian gods and start to worship the calf, right? And so Moses comes down, having heard from the Lord. And what does the Lord have to say? Thou shalt not. That's all he says. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Oh, it's the law. Guess what? It's a great grace that he told them at all. And he wanted to destroy them right then and there, but relented of his anger because Moses stood there and and interceded. His most Christ-like moment in his life. He interceded for the obviously guilty, and God relented. And so though the law is hard, and though the law raises the bar of condemnation, right, the law makes it easier to be condemned. It's just too much to follow. And it's also a great grace of God that he revealed his mind to men. The fact that Paul speaks of doers as morally superior to hearers speaks volume with regards to personal responsibility. We who have the word of God will be judged by a stricter code of personal behavior than those who perish without the law. Now, there's a couple of subjects here that I didn't go into, and I'll, I'll be very honest with you. I don't quite fully understand them, but if you notice, he talks about, well, let me read it. He talks about the difference between judgment and perishing, and I didn't go into that this week, and I may go into it next week. Because it has to do with salvation. And as I read uh, in the commentaries, particularly from Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, that's all I can tell you because I don't really understand it. So I'm thinking, well, if Martin Lloyd-Jones doesn't understand it, maybe I can get off the hook. But it's a difficult concept. It has to do with salvation, and I'm going to probe into it. All right? But God likes doers. And And whenever I've said this in the past, people say, he's preaching works. I am preaching works. But not to be saved by them, to gain assurance by seeing them. James says, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So the fact that Paul speaks of doers as morally superior to hearers speaks volumes about personal responsibility. We who have the word of God will be judged by a stricter code of behavior than those who don't have the word of God. And don't miss the horror in the warning that even your secret thoughts and deeds are known to God, and man must give account of them. Think of the things that we don't reveal, that we don't want revealed. 
The secrets of men's souls are open to the eyes of God. Lloyd-Jones again, how terrified we all are of being exposed. You know, think of a politician. He's got all these bad habits on the side. You know, all these affairs with women and things like that. And finally it hits the papers. It's like, it didn't bother him that he did those things. It just bothered him that you found out that he did them. The minds of men are such schemers and we scheme behind blinders. We think so long as our sin's not found out, not spoken of, hidden behind masks of our own making, and I'm not talking about the masks. I'm talking about the ones we wear when we take off the mask. Behind our mask, we're innocent. I got these sins, but nobody knows. I'll be okay. Well, there's one who knows. So long as the mask is on, we say, I'll never be seen. I'll never be judged. But the apostle exposes us. He rips off the mask. You ever heard a person say, I don't care about your judgment of me. God is my judge. I'll let God judge me. Friends, you are so much better off having me judge you than God. Right? Fear him who can kill body and soul in hell. And that, may be well, that well may be written on their gravestones. Let God judge me. You're so much safer under the judgment of man than under the judgment of God. He's aware of the secret things, the things we don't talk about, the things we strive to keep hidden. Friends, before our gospel can save us, and it happens somewhere deep in the bowels of the epistle to the Romans, but somewhere we're going to get saved in all of this. Before the gospel can save us, it must reveal us, and it must reveal us to ourselves. And that's what Paul's doing in these early chapters. Open your eyes. Heed the pronouncement of Nathan. Go home today, look in the mirror and say, you are the man. Unless you're a woman, say something else. It's better to find yourself today than to have God find you alone with your secrets in the day of judgment. Amen? Oh, Father, be merciful with your people, we pray. We are but sinners in your sight. But, Father, put a notion in our minds to repent of the sins, to see them clearly before you. And let us know that you are no respecter of persons. We pray you will deal mercifully with your church. In Jesus' name, amen.